0: Thank you very much, Dr. Doherty, for a fitting introduction to what I'd like to speak on this morning, and thank you for the beautiful music, the depth, the quality, and Corey, thank you for that good work from John's epistle. Appreciated it. And uh, Remembrance Day, I, my grandfather and my father served in World War I. There's an explanation why my father and grandfather served in World War I, because my father married my mother when she was 18 and he was 42. So don't come and ask me why in the world that happened. I have just enjoyed life. And Dad knew the Lord, but because he was so much older, my grandfather and my father used to sit at the table and discuss the war. And sometimes to the chagrin of my mother as my grandfather got a knife out and lined up the battle lines with the knife on the tablecloth <laughs> trying to explain. Uh, he was the oldest of the old contemptibles. That that's contemptible was the first uh, British cavalry in World War I. And my grandfather for many years was, until he passed away, one of the oldest in the parade in, in, in Ontario. Um, but Canada... I, I went online yesterday to the Veteran Affairs and, and uh, they reminded us that Canadians in World War I, 14 to 18, that's called the Forgotten War. One of those veterans sort of got pushed in the background after World War II. The Second World War, 1939, 1945, I was born in 43, and uh, so and, uh, Canadians served also in the Korean War. 1950 to 53, and 1500 1500, one million five hundred thousand Canadians served in those three wars, and a hundred thousand died. That's eight to nine percent of the Canadians who went to war lost their lives in those wars, and so we have a great debt, so that you and I could live in peace. And uh, went online and found some interesting things about that, but I'm not going to elaborate any more. You can see I got quite a bit online about Canada's part. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning. I want you to turn to Psalm nineteen. A familiar Psalm? I want to focus on basically three verses in Psalm nineteen. I was intrigued with our speaker's referenced this past week to Borden of Yale. And I asked my daughter to get me the biography of Borden, and I began reading that with keen interest again after many years. A very interesting young man. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. And uh, we won't soon forget that. That's a great, great philosophy for a Christian with respect to their Savior. But in looking at the book, I came across two quotes, and uh, they lead into what I want to speak to you about from Psalm 19. First one was by Samuel Rutherford. And uh, as I read these quotes, I thought of you sitting down there and, and uh with all the vigor of youth, and what life has to offer you, and what Christ has for you. And Rutherford said this, Oh, what a glorious yoke Our youth and grace. Christ and a young man, or a young woman. What a yoke. What a team together. Christ and a young person. Youth and God's grace. Under that was a selected portion, and it said this, it is the God-governed life and not the self-governed life which counts for most. The God-governed life and the self-governed life. You've made a choice in coming to New Brunswick Bible Institute this year or for whatever period of time you're going to be here. It's a choice I made as a young man sitting in the city of Toronto, downtown Toronto, working the Hartford Fire Insurance Company, and wanting to get alone and spend time with God each day as I did, and had a choice to make. I had read in the Bible, Son, give me thine heart. And I remember as that phrase from Proverbs leaped out of the page at me, and I wanted God to have my life. I didn't articulate it this way, but I wanted a God-governed life. I wanted a life in which my life, I trust, would count for God. That was my desire. You've made a choice, as I made at that time, an educational choice, to come and study the Word of God. You've decided, as I did, to begin your life, long training and walk by studying at a school where the Bible is the center of focus. Others of your friends have chosen to study the book of nature, to study the sciences, and that's good. I think people should have a balanced education. Some have chosen to study in the book of human nature, to study the behavioral sciences, psychology, Go to university and study in these areas. You have chosen to study the Bible. For men to choose the other two and your friends to choose the other two, if they know the Lord and they walk with God, that's good balance. But if they choose the other two and neglect this book, that's imbalance. You have chosen to study God's Word. Psalm 19 reveals God. And it's God revealing Himself in three areas. In the heavens, the first part, verses 1 to 6. And we'll read that. What a great way to start every day. I don't mean reading necessarily Psalm 19, 1 to 6. But what a great way to start your day focusing on the glory of God. And in Psalm 19, 1 to 6, to the, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of a chamber, his chamber, and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and His circuit unto the ends of it, and there's nothing hid from the heat thereof. It's not my purpose to expound that part this morning, it's Safe to say this, that God reveals Himself in the heavens. And when we begin each day, we should begin it by beholding the glory of God in creation, but even more so beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The great creator is our Savior, the love of God, as we read it, sang about it this morning. But here's how you ought to do it. And let me just say this. Look at verses 5 and 6. When we focus and begin the day, beginning the day and focusing on the glory of God, do it with the devotion of a bridegroom. Do I need to describe that to anybody? I think of one of the Craziest things that ever happened, and somebody that some of you know, and I'm not going to go into the details, but uh, before on on his wedding party at the reception, somebody slipped sleeping powder into his drink. The bride and the bridegroom set out on their honeymoon, and he had hardly gone 25 or 30 miles, and he said, I don't think I'm going to make it to where we were going to spend the evening on our honeymoon. He pulled into a motel, he and his wife. He went into the motel. He sat on the edge of the bed, and he fell asleep. Not what you think about in devotion of a bridegroom to his bride, right? You say, how could that happen? Now, I hope I haven't planted any seed in anybody's devious mind this morning. But what God says here, and get the picture, it's a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and he's going out in a Jewish wedding, and he's going and he's looking, and his focus is on the bride, which is the way it should be. And he says, listen, approach the glory of God with that same devotion. When we got married, my wife and I stood at the back, and I didn't realize what was happening. You see... I came to the front, stood at the front. and As my wife stood at the back, she had one focus in mind. I've got to get down that aisle. And she had that word aisle on her mind. Aisle. I've got to get down through the aisle. Then she looked, and there at the front, I was at the altar. And now she began to think, altar, altar, altar. My wife knows where I'm going with this. She's going to shoot me. <laughs> altar alter and then she looked up and she said him him i'll alter him (laughs) focusing on the bridegroom (laughs) well listen uh unfortunately some people in their devotion to the lord jesus want to alter god and god's word and what god's doing but he's going to alter the bridegroom is going to alter us Willingly, as we cooperate with him. Start the day by looking at the glory of God and devoting yourself to the bridegroom. But look at also, it says, it says this, and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. Approach it with the dedication of an athlete, the discipline of an athlete. So it's a great way to start the day, but... The way to live your life and to live the day is found now in verses 7 to 9. If God reveals himself in the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. In Psalm 19, at verse 7, he's declaring himself and he's revealing himself in the Holy Scriptures. Verses 7 to 11. And these verses will reveal to us what the Scriptures will do for you. You've chosen to focus If you want a God-governed life and not a self-governed life. If you want to link with God. What a glorious yoke. What a glorious coming together. A young person with a life to go out and live for Jesus Christ. To be yoked with the God of the universe. What you can accomplish if you will walk with God and allow Him to alter you and bring you into the Christ-likeness that was so vividly given to us in John this morning, the epistle. If only we'd do that. Amos says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, the person you're walking with is God. He doesn't need any direction as to which way he should go. (laughs) He wants you to focus on him. And these verses tell you how you can walk in agreement with God. If only you allow the Scriptures, as you seek to have a God-governed life and allow the Scriptures to work in your life, what will the Scriptures do for you? Well, number one, you have to read it. Revelation 1, 3, as we said the other day, blessed is he that readeth this book. And we could apply that to the Word of God, total. And then if you will meditate on it, go to Psalm chapter 1. The writer here now is going to give us actually seven statements about the Word of God. But it's all predicated upon this, if you will read it, and then if you will meditate upon it. Psalm 1, "...blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night." Meditate means to discuss or to chatter in your mind. Thomas Watson Says medication is the index. The index. Now, an index shows you what's in the book. And meditation is the index of the heart. It shows you what's in your heart. It's chewing the cud like a cow, or it's it's like we got some tangerines we bought, and I like to put that tangerine in my mouth, and I chew the pulp, but I want to get what's in. Out of the pulp, I want to have the meat of the orange. And so meditation is when you take the Word of God and you discuss it, and you think about it, and you chew it to get the nutrients out of it. And it's, unfortunately, it's becoming a lost art because all our technological, technological age gives us everything so quick, and we can jump to the next point before we've even digested the first point. So let me suggest this to you now. What I'm about to say about the Scriptures is these verses will reveal what the Bible will do for you if only you will read it and if only you will meditate on it and then if you will only obey it. Meditation is what God reveals to your heart as you worship Him. You see that in verses 12 to 14 of this psalm. Which again, we're not going to expound, but we're going to focus on 7 to 9. But look at verse 12 or verse 11. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Lord, make my devotional life meaningful as I meditate, as I chew, as I discuss, as I understand my life in the light of your word and what I need to do. And so if I begin each day seeking his glory, and if I continue through the day and into the night meditating on his word, I will conclude the day by worshiping Him. What a great combination. Christ and a young person having a God-governed life rather than a self-governed life. Well, how do we do it? Number one, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul or converting the soul. Your good marginal Bibles will say restoring. And notice it's the law of the Lord. Seven times in that little brief section, it says the Lord. That's Jehovah. That's the redemptive name for God. Two other times, he'll come down in verse 14 and he'll say that again and use the the word O Lord, the redemptive name, Jehovah, and he'll say my strength and my redeemer. That's Jehovah Zureh and Jehovah Goyal, my rock and my redeemer. It's the one who loved you, who bought your soul, who paid the price at Calvary to redeem you, and he redeemed you for a purpose. He bought you out of the slave market of sin so he could do something with your life that would never have happened apart from his working in your life and apart from your turning to him in obedience for salvation and allowing him to convert your soul, allowing him to restore your soul. Perfect means blameless. It means flawless. And what he's saying about his word is, the law of the Lord is blameless standard. It's perfect. It's a mirror that shows me my carnality. Turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, or verse, pardon me, 12, verse 12. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Go over with me to 1 Timothy 1.8. To see this principle worked out in Paul's own life, 1 Timothy 1.8. Again, just as Romans says the law is holy, it's good, the writer of Psalms says the law is perfect, it's flawless, it's a blameless standard. The writer says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, we know the law is good if a man use it lawfully. knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners. And he goes on to define. And then Paul goes on to say this, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, after describing who the law is made for, and it's for all those things that are contrary to good, healthy teaching, And then he goes on and says that, "'I thank Christ Jesus our Lord,' verse 12, "'who hath enabled me that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, "'who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, "'but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, "'and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus.'" This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. When God held the blameless standard of the law of God against what Paul thought was his own perfect life as a Pharisee, Paul saw this, that the law of God revealed who he really was, a blasphemer. Injurious, actually hurting people with the self righteous standard that he had himself. And so when he came, he discovered this that there is one perfect law. And it's the law of God. And the law of God is a blameless standard. It's a mirror that reveals my carnality. In my life, the Word of God did for me what religion and relationship and relatives, and all the good influences in my life could not do. I remember coming to church as a religious young man, coming to church as brought up in a home with two godly parents. And that night as the preacher preached the gospel, and this is what's important when it says the law is perfect, converting the soul, restoring the soul. That's why it's so important, the word Lord there, the redemptive name for Christ. Because if you can't bring redemption into the picture, the law is only that which condemns us. And that night, as the gospel was preached, and I saw myself for the first time in my life as a more than a Baptist, but a hell-deserving Baptist. More than a son of a praying father and a godly mother, but a young man with sin in my heart who needed to be saved. The sin that I later found out is in all men, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if any man says he has no sin, he lies and he deceives himself. And the law held me up. But that night, thank God, That through the grace of God, I didn't blame the law. There was nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. The law is blameless. The law is flawless. There was something wrong with me. We live in a society that wants to blame God's law. We even live in a society where Christians want to change God's laws. But the Bible says this you link with God and you want a God governed life, you understand the principle is this that the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. The soundest church can fail. The godliest of people can fall. The most dependable source of help that you can get can go wrong. But there's a little chorus we sing when we go out to Otasega, written by Anne Luther was her name before she was married, And Anne's father wrote that song, and it's this, Jesus never, what, fails. Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away. The person that I look to the most may fail. The organization I depended upon the most may fall. But Jesus never fails. It's the law of the Lord, the Redeemer. That's what's perfect. Not the way it's presented by individuals or organizations, but it's God and God himself. What a yoke, young people, in a God-given life, governed life with God. For deeper insight, look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, verse 99. Here's hope for you, young people. When one meditates, look at Psalm one nineteen ninety seven. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Though through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my, what? I want all the students to read that right now. And I want you to smile when you read it. And Pastor Doherty and I are just becoming unemployed. I want you to read it. Everybody read it. I have what? What? Why can that be? Answer it from the same verse. Ah. See how important it is? To meditate in his law day and night? Huh? You're not, gonna be, you're not going to be bound by what we taught you all your life. God wants to get in a relationship with you as individuals. And he wants you to enter into a God-governed life. And then that's the case then what we've taught you. And hopefully we're teaching you rightly from the word of God. But we're human beings. But we have this great confidence. I do. And I say to you this, I knew Dr. Doherty before he was a doctor. And this morning I learned I knew Dr. Doherty before he was a singer. And I know how God has ministered in his life and used the Word of God to be a blessing to him and to us. Why? Because the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Perfect. And what does it do for us? It gives us understanding. It converts, it restores the soul. The second thing, the law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord is what? Sure. Making wise the simple. Well, I'm not going to ask anybody to... Define whether they're simple or not. But the testimony of the Lord is what? Making wise the simple. Look at Psalm 93. Psalm 93. And in Psalm 93, verse 5, The testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Psalm 93, 5. Over to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Verse 7 The work of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. In those verses, we see that the testimony of God is holy. It's eternal and all his commandments are sure. It's complete. So God's word is steadfast. Actually, the Hebrew word for thy the, uh, testimony is sure. The word for sure is aman. It's actually pronounced ah, oh, man. Really. And I thought about that and I thought, no wonder we get into trouble. Ah, oh, man. We follow man and his testimonies, and his testimony sometimes goes astray. He got it wrong. But God's Word is steadfast, Amen. man faithful to be believed. Continue for a long time. It's permanent. Don't bank on God changing and adopting Rob Bell's positions. Don't bank on just because some evangelical comes up with a new evangelical position that God's going to change it. God's Word is sure. It's eternal. It's steadfast. It's not an X standard. We used to go by that. It's an eternal standard. It's not like the rules at MBBI. The rules at MBBI are not eternal. And you say, thank the Lord, I wouldn't want to have come here when you guys came here. You're right. Before I came, couples could meet once a month. When we came, we could meet once a week. For 45 minutes. Aren't you glad that that rule is not eternal? And yet, what happens? There are some people that want to have their rules to be eternal. The law is sure, though. It's not an X standard. It's an eternal standard. So clear that all men everywhere can understand because it makes wise the simple. Ephesians 1.8. You take Ephesians Ephesians 1.8. Now, Ephesians, that book was written in the midst of a real pagan, horrific culture. And Paul does not write the Ephesians and tell them, what you need to do is be really wise about the culture of the temple of Diana. I wrote a Christian publishing company a few years ago because they published a book on the Ephesian culture. It was supposed to have been an exposition on Ephesians. It was more of an exposition on filth. And a pastor's wife wrote them, and then she got a letter back for them, and and they said that, uh, you know, that this was the age we lived in. And so I wrote them back a letter from the New Brunswick Bible Institute, and I said to them that uh, Paul, who lived in that culture, didn't write a book of Ephesians to describe the culture. He wrote to tell people how they could live godly in the culture. And it wasn't the wisdom of Diana that he was enamored with. It was the wisdom of God. And Ephesians chapter 1, look what he says. Ephesians 1, verse 6, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all what? Wisdom and prudence be wise not in worldly pagan teaching which you can be by being on the net today and find out almost anything but be wise in the wisdom of God's word why because the testimonies of the lord are sure they're eternal And the statutes of the Lord are right, number three. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, you get the progression. There's conversion. And then there's stability. The word of the Lord is sure, it makes wise. There's wisdom following the refreshing of the soul, the conversion of the soul. And then the heart rejoices. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. A doctor wants to give people right medicine. I'm glad that I have a good doctor who's very, very careful about what he prescribes and discusses things very, very carefully and is slow. He wants to get it right, and I'm glad for that. And then a counselor wants to give right advice. The Bible says this, that the statutes of the Lord are right Rejoicing the heart. Now, they only rejoice the heart if we read them. They only rejoice the heart if we obey them. They only rejoice the heart if we don't dilute them. And they only rejoice the heart if we don't misinterpret them. Now, I have many books in my library, several hundred. Some are secular. And they provide historical information and biographical information. Most of the books in my library are evangelical. I like Will Durant's philosophy of history. It enlightens my mind, but it does not rejoice my heart. <laughs> he knows the history of Babylon, and he'll tell you the history of Babylon and Rome and these civilizations. The news often informs me, about what's going on? And literally, my heart almost breaks daily with this Syrian thing. 9,000 fled over the border just in one day on Friday into Turkey and now have developed 120,000 Syrians in no man's land in in Turkey near the Syrian border and 28,000 killed. No, the news provides us with information, but it doesn't rejoice my heart. There's things that you can read that may be informative and they may enlighten the mind and that's needed. And I think of some of the books that I've bought for various reasons on various subjects to handle responsibilities that were secular responsibilities. And yet I can say this the books that I've read on finances, on administration, on philosophy, they may provide for each person a level of satisfaction at their own level, wherever they're at, but only the Word of God can rejoice the heart spiritually. The world has a philosophy, and the world's philosophy is different from God's philosophy. Seek them, even the best of the world, and read it, and they cannot rejoice the heart. The philosophies have come and gone, I think, in our lifetime. I think of various philosophies that people chased in the church. I think of RB Theme years ago when the early 70s, Dave, and late 60s. I think of the bus ministry boys that said that philosophy. And it's not against buses, but I think of those who made that the be it all and the end all in the church as the means for building Sunday schools. I think of the Christian liberty movement that destroyed two Bible institutes in New England I think of the friendship evangelism that led and enticed believers into doing things in order to reach people and engage in the practice of keeping liquor in their homes, for instance, in their fridge to serve people, though they themselves didn't drink. Well, you know, you know what happened with many people. Then they began taking up drinking as Christians. I think of those philosophies just as some of the simpler ones. But let me say this to you. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. Right. The laws of God are right because he makes the rules. We see that we can defy God's laws. There's the laws that are still in vogue. The law of gravity. There's the law of sin and death. Men still die and they die because of sin. And yet they don't want to mess with sin. They want to rename it. They want to make it easier to live with. But they forget that God's law is right and It rejoices the heart. Notice the progression. Conversion, wise, happy. The law of the Lord or the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure, it means no error defiles it. Books that have been scarred by error, I think of that in my library I've got the book of one, one real, real, well noted evangelical fundamental scholar, but in it he's got, a, he's got a devastating air. One thought that he allows at the end of the book his book is not what? Pure. This book, no sin, pollutes it. I have songs by gospel singers that quite now, frankly, now I don't want to listen to because I know what they wrote, what they sang, the great blessing to people, but today their life is living just totally contradictory to what they were singing and wrote. And that mars it, doesn't it? It's not a pure stream. Now, thank God their lives can be changed in the grace of God, but I'm talking about people who are still allowing the stream to be polluted. It enlightens the eye. It enlightens it to sorrow and sin. The light of God's Word enlightens and gives discernment. You go out and you see, you talk about pure light. You can't stare at the pure light of the sun. You can't stare. In, in the wintertime, a great big snowfall comes, and you know we, we call it the, the, the snow blindness, and blinded by the snow. Pure snow, fresh fall of snow, blinds. But the purity of God's Word doesn't destroy you. The purity of God's Word Will strengthen you. It will enlighten the eyes. It will give strength. Before we were saved, we rejoiced in all things that destroy a man. I remember at work in a Hartford fire insurance company, men coming in. I'd come in Monday morning and they'd say, Oh, what did you do? Well, I was at church. Oh, Hogue, what a life. What a sickening life. Oh, you should have been with me. I was at a party. It was great. I got sick. I got a hangover. My head hurts. I can't work today. You should have been with me. No, thank you. Want a drink from a pure stream. Psalm 119, 136 to 40. Wrapping this up quickly. 119, 136. Righteous art thou, O Lord. Verse 137 of Psalm 119. 136 says, rivers of water run down mine eyes. They keep not thy law. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure. Therefore thy servant, what? Loveth it. Loveth it. Listen, the truth, the purity, the truth makes the heart right. And when the truth makes the heart right then what happens is this. It gives joy to a right heart. You allow the truth to change your heart, and then when your heart's changed to accommodate the truth, it will make and give you the joy that comes to the right heart. It's pure. And the response is, we should love it. Verses 10, 11. Look, more to be desired are they than gold. Love it more than fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, because moreover by them is thy servant warned. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You know, drink turned my grandfather, who was a mild man, into a wild man when he drank. The gospel turned my father, who was a wild man, Before he was converted into a mild man. That's what the gospel does. And the word of God is clean. We used to have a commercial we used to sing Mr. Clean, you ever see it? Mr. Clean can clean your whole house and everything that's in it. Mr. Clean can clean your whole house. And he gets rid of dirt and grease and grime in just a minute. Well, I want to tell you this Mr. Clean's got nothing on the cleanness of the word of God. It'll clean our houses, it'll clean our churches and you will be a better man a better woman by allowing the word of god to clean in pilgrim's progress progress mr godly fear he's not satisfied as he goes in to uh, every nook and cranny every home every street every alley every corner in diabolian you remember the diabolians representing satan in the dirt and filth that he wasn't happy till he got in there and cleaned every bit out and that's what god's wanting to do in your life and my life because the Word of God, the Word of God is clean and it endures what? Forever. It's a clean stream. It'll last forever. It takes care of the dirt. Cleanliness. God's Word endures forever because it's clean. We talk about the unalterable law of the Medes and the Persians. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written, speaking about his law being final. But I'm glad in a world where man is rewriting the laws and constantly not to better mankind, but to accommodate our sinfulness and gratiate our selfishness, God's word is clean and it endures forever. No matter what laws changed in Maine, God's law hasn't changed. His word endures forever. And his judgments are true and righteous altogether. I am opposed, not to the Ten Commandments, not to the word of God. I'm opposed to John Hogue. I don't want a self-governed life. I want a God-governed life. Through grace and truth, it's in Jesus Christ. The conclusion, the psalmist says, is desire God's word more than gold, discover the sweet it's as sweet as honey. Pay attention to its warning signs. Notice what he says. In keeping of them there's great reward, but moreover, by them is thy servant warned. Martin Luther, and I want to close with this, I want you to turn to Jeremiah 15, 16. Martin Luther once received word from a friend. It was a picture. It was a drawing of a man that was out to destroy Luther. And so the uh, friend sent Luther a picture of this man so he would be alerted. And one day, there was a presence of several people, Martin Luther looked up and he saw the man who was in the picture. And the man was there to do him in, to kill him. And Luther was able to escape and slip out because he had heeded the warning the picture that the friend had given him. With that in mind, think of this as we close. We spoke the other morning about Daniel found in the place of prayer. Well, here's a man found in the word. And the word's found. Daniel found prayer. Here the word of God is found by Jeremiah. Look what he says. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Just as Luther's picture warned him of the one to destroy him, God's word describes the fleshly lusts that war against the soul. And it paints a clear picture so you and I can escape these lusts so that we can escape those things that clearly would destroy our soul and it can give us discernment. Augustine said, meditation is my delight. And Jeremiah here saying, listen, take the word of God and let thy word be the rejoicing of my heart. He found, found the word of God. I would say this, wear the word of God not on your lapel like a poppy. But where? In your heart. All those things it will do for you. What a great combination. The God of the universe and a young person who walk together in agreement because they are walking in accordance with the Word of God. What a challenge. Father, thank Thee for Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.